Good evening, guys, and welcome to another Bible study here at Calvary Chapel, Birmingham. Tonight, we're going to be covering John chapter 14, and Lord willing, we'll be covering verses 18 to 25. But before we get into the word, let's just have a quick word of prayer and ask the Lord to be with us, to strengthen us, and to give us wisdom to understand what he's having to say to us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is our saviour. He is our Lord. He is our shepherd. He is our king. And Father, we come before you now and we pray as we study your word that Lord, the Lord Jesus will be magnified and that Lord, we would grow in our faith and our understanding of just who he is and what he has done for us. Lord, we also pray the spirit would apply these truths to our hearts and would stir us up in our walk with Christ. I mean, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, John chapter 14, verses 18 to 25 in the New Living Translation says, No, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Since I live, you also will live. When I am raised to life again, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, my Father will love them. And I will love them and reveal myself each to them. Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but the other disciple with that name, said to him, Lord, why are you going to reveal yourself only to us and not to the world at large? Jesus replied, all who love me will do what I say. My father will love them and we will come and make our home with each of them. Anyone who doesn't love me will not obey me. And remember, my words are not my own. What I am telling you is from the Father who sent me. I am telling you these things now while I am still with you. As we've gone through John chapter 14 so far, we've seen as the upper room discourse commenced, as, as Jesus started to teach his disciples for the final time, everything they needed to know. We've seen Jesus reminding his disciples that he is going to be with them, that he is going to be their source of peace, their source of joy and their source of comfort in the difficulties that would follow Christ's death. Of course, Jesus was going to rise from the dead. He was going to defeat sin and death and he was going to come back to his disciples and show them the fullness of what it meant for Jesus to be risen from the dead, to be the conquering king and for them to live in resurrection hope. And of course, all of this was predicated as well on the Holy Spirit coming because Jesus' death and resurrection and indeed his ascension to heaven would make way for the Holy Spirit to come, to come in the hearts of those believers who trust in him and also to empower believers from, a, um, from above to do the work of witnessing and to apply the promises of God to their hearts and to their lives as they live day by day. You see, God's son had gone to be in heaven. The Holy Spirit had come from heaven to earth to be with the believers and was going to empower the believers to do the works that Christ had called them to do. And we've seen time and time again, haven't we, how the Father, the Son and the Spirit work together. They work together to not only produce salvation, to bring about salvation, but they also work together to empower the believer to do what Jesus has called them to do. 
And we saw last week, of course, the promise that the spirit would come, not only that he would be with them, but also he would be in them. And as we saw from Luke 24 and Acts 1 and 2, not only in them, but upon them, a promise from the father to all those that seek the Lord for his empowerment. So we continue the discourse, verses 18 to 20. No, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Since I live, you also will live. When I am raised to life again, you know, or you will know, that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I am in you. Having just described um, the coming of the Spirit to the believers, I think it's tempting, and in many ways, many Bible teachers do teach this, that the spirit would indeed not leave the believers, the disciples as orphans. They would not be left without the presence of God, but that the spirit coming into them would serve as their permanent, um, would serve as a permanent presence of the Lord in the believer. They would not be orphans. They would have God with them. Children of God would have God with them. But if you look at the way in which the word is used to come, it's in the present tense. And actually, there's an expectancy that Jesus would come back at any moment. And I think actually this passage is talking about Jesus' resurrection appearances, post-resurrection appearances to the disciples. Because it says immediately after Jesus mentions uh, about them not being left as orphans in verse 21, when I am raised to life again, which gives you the context of what he's saying. So Jesus is saying in verse 18, He's not going to leave the disciples as orphans, but he's going to come back for them. He's going to leave his spirit in them. And that combination means that a believer in Jesus Christ is never without God. He's never without the presence of God in him. Yes, a believer cannot listen to God. A believer can grieve God and can grieve the Holy Spirit. But the Lord never leaves the believer. And that is a tremendous promise, a tremendous promise to the believer in Jesus Christ that has trusted in him for salvation. You see, after the resurrection, there were 10 distinct appearances that Jesus made to the disciples, indeed to people on the earth before he ascended. And I think in some senses, verse 18 is capturing a prediction, a prophecy that Jesus makes that he's going to come and do this. And Tom's going to put up a table now of various Bible references that show us the different appearances Jesus made after his resurrection. And it would be a great study for you to do in your own time, to look up these references and to see just what Jesus did after his resurrection, because it's these eyewitness accounts that form some of the greatest evidence for the resurrection. So the first appearance Jesus made to, um, to anybody after his resurrection was to Mary Magdalene, John 20, verses 11 to 18. The second appearance is to Mary, Salome, Joanna and another woman who is not named. Just because she's not named doesn't mean that Jesus didn't appear to her. And we see this in Matthew 28, 1, Mark 16, 1 and Luke 24, 10. And again, this is very shortly after Mary, again in the tomb. The third appearance is to Simon Peter in Luke 24, 34 and 1 Corinthians 5. And of course, Peter needed the Lord to come back to him probably the most of them all, because he had failed the Lord. He had he denied the Lord three times and he needed to be restored so that he could go forth and do the ministry 
the work that Jesus had called him to do. But I find this the most amazing thing about the Lord. He took the time to personally appear to Peter, to say to Peter, do you love me? Of course, that conversation that Jesus has later uh, in a later appearance uh, after his resurrection with Peter is amazing. But he comes to Peter really early on and says, I'm here. I've defeated death. It's OK. We don't know what that conversation looked like, but I imagine Peter was astounded at the grace that the Lord had given to him when he appeared to him personally. The fourth appearance is to Clopas and a companion on the road to Emmaus. Luke 24, 13 to 35. The fifth appearance when the Holy Spirit is breathed into the disciples by Jesus Christ. The, 11, the, the 10 disciples at this point. Luke 24, 36 to 43 and John 20, 19 to 25. That was the moment the disciples were born again. And then sixthly, he appeared to the disciples, this time including Thomas in John 20, 26 to 29. Seventh, he appeared to the seven disciples at the Sea of Tiberias in John 21, 1 to 23. The eighth appearance was to a large gathering at, the, at a mountain in Galilee and was likely when Jesus came to 500 people at once. Matthew 28, 16, 17 and 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6. The ninth appearance was to his half-brother James in 1 Corinthians 15, 7. And then the tenth and final appearance is when the Lord appeared to his disciples at the Mount of Olives. He gave them the Great Commission and, of course, he promised them the promise of the Father, the Spirit coming upon them to empower them for ministry. Before he went to heaven, Luke 24, 49-53 and Acts 1, 3-11. You see, the disciples were feeling they would be abandoned by Jesus. But they were promised by Jesus they would not be left as orphans. They would not be left as orphans. He cared enough about them to show them himself following his resurrection, to personally appear to them and say, it's okay, I have a plan. The plan is going perfectly to plan. And I have defeated sin, I have defeated death, and I'm going to be with my father and make way for the spirit to come. You see, Jesus had reassured his disciples after his resurrection and he was also going to commission them to work for him, commission them to do the works that he had called them to do. And of course, it is no coincidence, is it, that James is called Old Camel Knees because having met the Lord following the resurrection, there was nothing James wanted to do more than to pray and to worship his half-brother, the Lord himself. And every single time Jesus appears to somebody after the resurrection, it's to believers. And this is why it says in our passage, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. You being the disciples, you being believers in Jesus Christ. And on a side note, just for a second, isn't it amazing that we have these accounts in Scripture, that the Holy Spirit has inspired these accounts to be in the Bible? Because when somebody comes to you and says, Ah, the resurrection didn't happen. It's all in your head. It's all in the head of Christians. It's all a complete fallacy. You have to ask yourself the question. If the early Christians were still alive, when the early Pharisees and Jews were trying to disprove the resurrection, and they were, they could have just gone up to them and disproven it. They couldn't disprove it because it was eyewitness accounts and the eyewitness accounts stacked up. There was over 500 people at one point that saw Jesus alive. 
500 eyewitnesses to something happening. And their testimony was clearly consistent because we still believe today firmly and resolutely that Jesus rose from the dead on the basis of the evidence that we see. We don't believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead because of blind faith. We believe it because the Bible says it and because eyewitness accounts and testimonies show it to be true. If a murderer was seen by 500 witnesses, this person would be going to jail. And using the same evidence, the same standard of evidence that is used in a court of law, Jesus is risen from the dead. He is resurrected. He is alive and at the right hand of the Father. And these appearances and the eyewitness accounts are so sure that the Jews, that the sceptics, nobody could disprove that Jesus Christ is alive today. And that is the source of our hope, because without the resurrection, we are pitied. But with the resurrection, knowing that he is risen from the dead, we have a certain hope of eternal life in Jesus Christ. Verse 21, those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, that my father will love them and I will love them and reveal myself to them. Having resurrected from the dead, Jesus appears to his disciples and he, and he repeats in many respects what he's just said between verses 15 to 21. He keeps repeating himself, those who love me will obey my commandments. Those who love me will take seriously what I have to say and listen to what I have to say and then go and do it. And we saw the distinction, didn't we, last time we studied this um, in verse 15 of John chapter 14, the distinction between knowing him and knowing him deeply, between saying we love him and actually loving him deeply and loving him with our whole being. You know, if we don't obey Jesus, if we don't um, sacrifice for Jesus in the sense of saying, Lord, you're, you're in charge, Lord, you're in control, I will follow what you want to do rather than what I want to do, it's a sign that we don't love him very much. And of course, we uh, want to respond in thanksgiving for all that he has done for us, because he has a master plan for us. He has plans for us to use us to serve him in whatever capacity that might be. And of course, Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his masterpiece and we want to become this masterpiece that the Lord has designed us to be so that we indeed may glorify him and give him all the glory that he deserves. Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's masterpiece or poema. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he has planned for us long ago. Good things that he has planned for us. We need to walk with him so we know what those things are and then be empowered by him and by the Holy Spirit so we can do the things in his strength rather than our own. You see, if you're struggling tonight, if your Christian walk is stalling, if you don't have any joy, if you don't have any peace that comes from knowing the Lord, you can know these things. You can indeed know the surety of salvation. You can know the peace of God that reigns in your hearts if you live in the light of his resurrection. And this is exactly what Jesus was doing to his disciples. The disciples thought that Jesus had died and was never coming back. But when he showed himself to them, he gave them assurance and certainty that they could live in the power of his resurrection. And we can live in the power of his resurrection because he is alive. 
He is risen from the dead and we can live in the light of that resurrection and the power of that resurrection today. You've got to remember, folks, that the world, the flesh and the devil are temporary enemies for us as believers in Jesus Christ. There will be a day because of the resurrection that we will be free of our flesh, that we will be free of the world and that we will be free of the enemy because we will be in the presence of the Lord with resurrection bodies. We will no longer be tempted to fail in many respects. We will no longer be given these constant battles to fight. We will be at home, our real home with the Lord. We won't need to fight anymore because we will be in the presence of Jesus Christ for all eternity. And this is why Jesus makes such a deal about this in John 16, 33. I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the world and we can be overcomers in him as we abide in him, as we live by faith and as we constantly day by day say, Lord, I want to live for you. Lord, I want to fight for you in your strength and in your timing and in your peace. The question this evening, folks, is are you loving him the way that you um, should be loving him? Are you listening to him? Are you letting his word sanctify you? Are you being set apart for him and his service? Because if you're not, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your time as a believer. Jesus Christ died and rose again for you so that you could do what he has called you to do. Don't do what you want to do. Do what the Lord has called you to do. And then verses 22 to 25. Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but the other disciple with that name said to him, Lord, why are you going to reveal yourself only to us and not to the world at large? Good question. Jesus replied, all who love me will do what I say. My father will love them and we will come and make our home with each of them. Anyone who doesn't love me will not obey me. And remember, my words are not my own. What I am telling you is from the father who sent me. I am telling you these things now while I am still with you. As you have seen through John chapter 14, and indeed, as you will see, as we continue through the upper room discourse, Jesus is teaching and the disciples then go, oh, OK, that makes sense. Or that doesn't make sense. I'll ask a question. And this pattern is repeated throughout the upper room discourse. Peter's had his turn. Thomas has had his turn. Philip's had his turn. And now it's the turn of Judas. And just to be clear, this is not Judas Iscariot because he left the room in uh, John 13, verse 31. The unbeliever in the room left the room, leaving only believers in the room. But this is likely Thaddeus. And we see Thaddeus mentioned in the other gospel accounts. And this is the other Judas that is mentioned in the gospel of John. And what did Thaddeus ask? Well, Thaddeus asked a good question. Lord, why are you going to reveal yourself only to us and not to the world at large? I don't know about you, but often questions reveal motivations or thoughts or understanding. When you ask a question, when somebody asks you a question, they're revealing a bit about what they're thinking as well as about what they need to know more about. And one of the very uh, quite comical illustrations of this 
is when I go to conferences sometime at work and there's somebody at the front of the hall talking about their research, talking about the latest evidence that might inform practice. And then when the talk is done, there's often a question or there's a series of questions and people can put their hand up to ask questions. And there's always one question, always one person who asks a question that's barbed, that's pointy, and that kind of highlights or reveals how much they know and how little the speaker knows. And it's actually revealing the heart of the person asking the question. It's revealing the heart of somebody that says, I, I know more than you. And this is not what is happening in this account, but is what's happening in this account. Thaddeus is saying, well, when you, why aren't you going to reveal yourself to the world? Why aren't you going to show yourself to the world, Jesus? Why is it only believers that are going to work this out? And from this question, Jesus determines that Thaddeus, in fact, has a slightly incorrect understanding of what's going to happen after Jesus ascends to heaven. Thaddeus revealed in his question what his understanding was. Now, we can't blame Thaddeus for this because Jesus had said something uh, a few days before in the Olivet Discourse, um, a discourse particularly to Israel at the time. Matthew 24, 30 to 31 shows us what Jesus said. And I think Thaddeus had this in mind when he asked the question. And then at last, the sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens. That's pretty obvious that that's happening and the world will see that. And there will be deep mourning amongst all the peoples of the earth. OK, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with the mighty blast of a trumpet and they will gather his chosen ones from all over the earth, from the farthest ends of the earth and the heavens. I think Thaddeus has got this in mind when he asked the question to Jesus a few days later. It says in Matthew 24 that the entire of the heavens, that all the people of the earth will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great glory from heaven. And that the angels will gather the ones that are chosen from all the corners of the earth. And I think this is what Judas or Thaddeus was thinking about when he asked Jesus that question. The question, though, folks, is does God's word ever contradict itself? And of course, the simple answer to that is no, it doesn't. There is not a single jot or tittle using the older English words of God's word that is not fulfilled. And there is no contradictions in God's word. And as we covered in the rapture series some months ago, the reason there seems to be two distinct accounts of Jesus coming back is because there are two phases to Jesus' return. We see further evidence that the apostles haven't quite got the right idea in Acts 1, 6 to 8. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? OK, that's an important point. He replied, the father alone has the authority to set these dates and times and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The disciples thought after Jesus' resurrection, that he was going to fulfill this promise in Matthew 24, I think, right now. I think that was the purpose of Thaddeus's question. He was like, Lord, are you going to come and restore Israel immediately after your resurrection? Are you going to come back and set your kingdom up right now? Are you going to rule and reign in Jerusalem over Israel and do everything that you promised you were going to do in the Old Testament in your kingdom right now? 
I think that's the reason he asked the question. But notice what Jesus says to Judas or Thaddeus in John 14, 25 and indeed in Acts 1, verse 6. He corrects their thinking. He says, don't be concerned about the kingdom coming imminently. Don't be concerned about that. Instead, be empowered by the spirit to be witnesses of the gospel message. Be witnesses of the gospel message. Don't be preoccupied with when the kingdom's going to come. Instead, be gospel witnesses. And of course, there was a pause and there remains a pause in many respects on the prophetic clock. Israel headed for judgment after the rejection of Jesus. They rejected the coming kingdom promises. And as a result, the Jewish nation was judged by the Romans. And in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. But does that mean, and, and the Jewish nation as a whole was dispersed, but does that mean that God is through with Israel? Does that mean the promises given to the Jewish people are done with? Absolutely not. God still has unfinished business with Israel. He still has unfinished promises that he has promised to Israel and to the Jewish people that he is going to come back, that he is going to call the Jewish people to them to himself, that they're going to accept him. And that at the end of the tribulation period, there will be the establishment of the millennial kingdom. When this happens, then the fulfillment of Matthew 24 and Acts 1 will occur. But for us as believers right now, and indeed for the disciples, we need to focus on the coming of the Lord in this cloud for his people at the rapture, not at the coming kingdom. Because Jesus is coming back for us, believers in Jesus Christ, before the tribulation period. We will not be in the tribulation period, but we will be with him in heaven. Our focus, our mission as believers in Jesus Christ is to not get um, obsessed, is to not get um, distracted or indeed distraught at what we see around us. To not think that we will come into the tribulation period, to not think that we will be attacked by the Antichrist. Our focus instead is not on the Antichrist, it is on Jesus Christ. It is on loving our neighbour as Jesus has called us to do. It is on spreading the gospel message to our neighbour as Jesus has called us to do. And it is indeed to be ready for his return for us in the clouds, in the sky, at the rapture. Remembering that the angels will not be collecting us when the rapture occurs, but that Jesus Christ himself will collect us. And that Jesus will meet us in the air, not on the earth. And if you want to clarify that in your mind again, go back to the rapture series and have a bit of a listen, because there is a clear distinction between what Thaddeus understood and was asking about here in Matthew 24, which was the coming of the kingdom that Jesus was going to reign over, and the rapture of the church, and indeed the promise to live in the light of his return day by day, to live in the light of his return as a comfort and an assurance, as we covered right at the beginning of John chapter 14, that he was going to come back for his children, for believers in Jesus Christ, for disciples. You see, we are to be ready for the Lord's return. We are to be ready for him. We don't want to stand before the Lord at the beamer seat. Disappointed in ourselves that we didn't live a life that Christ had called us to live, that we didn't die to ourselves and live for him as living sacrifices. 
Instead, we want to stand before him boldly, saying, Lord, you did what you caught, you did in my life what you wanted to do. And for that, I want to give you the glory and the praise. 1 John 2.28. And now, dear children, remain in fellowship with Christ so that when he returns, you will be full of courage and not shrink back from him in shame. You see this evening, folks, Jesus promised the disciples that he would not leave them as orphans. He came back to them to show them the power of the resurrection, to show them what it meant to live in the power of the resurrection. And indeed, he continued to show them the intimate relationship between loving Christ and obeying Christ. And ultimately, the source and the power of that obedience comes from an intimate knowledge of the Holy Spirit in the word of God, the Holy Spirit applying the word of God to our lives and then us living in obedience to Christ in the light of that knowledge of Christ, in the light of knowing God's promises and saying, Lord, have your will with us, have your way with us. Not my will, but yours be done, O Lord. You see, this evening, the time is precious. The time is urgent for us to be living the way that Christ has called us to live. We see people around us suffering. We see people around us dying in, in, in dying without Christ. And without Christ, they have no hope. But with Christ, we have hope. We have certain hope of eternal life with him, certain hope of forgiveness of sin, and certain hope that we are God's children. Live in the light of these promises this evening. Live in the light of the promises that God gives you in scripture. I was listening into the women's conference at the weekend and it was the most amazing thing to see the promises of God. The promises of God that he has given to us in the word. We can live in the light of these promises. We can make them our daily focus and we can pray over them. And they can be the source of wisdom that we need for our life day by day. Tonight, folks, as we leave the message, as we go about our business, I pray that the Lord would apply the promises of God to your life, that the Lord would show you the urgency of living for him and being a gospel witness in this world, and that you would be praying humbly before the Lord, that he would apply these promises, the words that we've read this evening to our hearts, and that we would be seeking the Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us how we can best glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it is alive, that it is a two-edged sword and that it indeed shows us the way that we need to walk. Help us, Lord, to live in expectancy, to live in the light of your promises for us, to live in the light of the resurrection. And help us, Lord, as we go from this place, as we go about our business, to remember that we have certain hope of resurrection because Christ Jesus rose from the dead. Christ Jesus defeated death and Christ Jesus came so that we might know forgiveness of sin and new life in him. Help us, Lord. Help us, Father, to apply these truths to our lives this evening. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great night. Take care.